Welcome to Get Over It, the Consciousness Transforming Podcast for Exceptional 21st Century Living. Folks, we have a show today on, on dignity, Alzheimer's, uh, forgetting who you are and possibly the other people around you. Um, Stephen G. Post is with us, and he's going to talk about his new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And, you know, we all know someone who either has Alzheimer's, had Alzheimer's, or you can see them on their way to possibly be getting to uh, coming down with Alzheimer's. And, you know, it's, um, it's a nasty, nasty condition. It, it truly is because it takes the person away from us. And more importantly, it takes us away from the person. But we're going to talk today on how to help deeply forgetful people. And that's Stephen's um, phrase for Alzheimer's. And it's deeply uh, forgetful people. Now, the information shared on Get Over It uses intuitive and pragmatic insight to help you shift your consciousness to break through blocks and release energy that is no longer needed. Yes, we're going to help you let go of the BS that's holding you back, but you guys know I always ask that question, are you truly ready to? And by the way, folks, BS is belief system. A bit about me for my new listeners, intuitive since birth. I'm a third-generation intuitive with over three decades of experience supporting people to break through the blocks along their path. I'm a strategist for personal and professional transformation, revealing cutting-edge information that enables you to prosper and thrive. I spent 25 years in uh, corporate America as an executive sales professional, and I'm the founder of Healing Visions Ministries and the Northern California Children's Education Network, a 501c3 nonprofit. I provide consultations and healings in all areas of life that heal the mind-body-spirit connection, allowing you to live your very best life. My clients tell me that I keep it real while providing them with accurate information to assist them along their journey as a spirit living a human existence. But they also say, if you really don't want to know, don't ask Monique. My background includes a doctorate in metaphysics, Reiki master teacher, ordained minister, and clinical hypnotherapist. So whether you're stressed, depressed, or possessed, I can help. To find out more about me and the services I offer, go to my website, nesmonikechapman.com. And I invite you to like me on Facebook and LinkedIn. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe or give us some stars, whatever it is that you feel um, appropriate to do, because we would absolutely positively love it. My guest today, uh, Stephen G. Post, PhD, is internationally renowned for his work with Alzheimer's patients, a disease which affects 4.5 million people in the United States. He is the most widely quoted thinker about dignity and love for deeply forgetful people in the world and has addressed national conferences on all continents. His book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Diagnosing to uh, Dying, um, was designated a medical classic of the century by the British Medical Journal, and that was back in 2009. Um, Stephen began his work with uh, Deeply Forgetful in uh, the Cleveland area when he was a professor of religion and ethics. So he's come a long, long way. And um, we he'll tell us his website because I don't have it here with me right now. Uh, welcome back, Stephen. Thank you, Monique. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks. What's your uh, website again? Make sure I have it. Okay, it's Stephen with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, post, P-O-S-T, Dot com. Okay, so just like your name, Stephen G. Post, we found your website. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, first of all, welcome again. Dignity for deeply forgetful people. First, explain to us what deeply forgetful people. Who are they? Well, I love the words "deeply forgetful people" because they add dignity to these lives. I don't like the word dementia because that's a negative term. It simply refers to a decline from a former mental state. And very typically, people use it to distinguish them from us. 
and it fosters negative metaphors like husk, shell, and empty, and gone, and dead, and absent, mm -hmm. whereas deeply forgetful people, you know, uh, sure, people have various degrees of forgetfulness, mm -hmm. but we all have our moments. <laughs> there, there is a continuum. There's normal, so-called normal age-related forgetfulness. There is mild cognitive impairment. There is dementia. None of these things are very well defined as you get further along. But, you know, I, I, I like deeply forgetful people because, frankly, Monica, I've had my moments. You know, I was out in the parking lot behind this medical school, Stony Brook, uh, uh -huh. about a year ago. And guess what? I had to ask a student if they knew where I parked my car. Well, that was okay. But then about a week later, I actually asked a student if they knew if I'd driven my car to work that day when they left. Oh, okay. So now that was that was a deeply forgetful moment. <laughs> that was a deeply forgetful moment. And Einstein would get lost in these moments of complete deep forgetfulness. He called them uh -huh. good Duncan experiments, just thought experiments. He lost uh -huh. all sense of time and place and identity. And he was very intuitive about this. And so it's not as though what they're experiencing is completely different than what we experience in lesser dimensions. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. But, you know, you said you um, forgot where your car was. I did an instance of forgetting where my car was and I was standing right in front of it because I bought the family's second car. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Looking for the wrong car. But, you know, I can be in mid-sentence, just normal uh, conversation, be in mid-sentence and I can't find the word. Sometimes I can't find the word that describes something or, or an object. So is that, and, and I'm very close to 70. So is that the age-related forgetfulness or is that just some kind of? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but you know, uh -huh. um, we all uh, are at times unable to uh, uh, grab hold of words. And it's quite frustrating. Mm -hmm. People, mm -hmm. people who... Uh, are further along in their forgetfulness, of course, this is um, more vexing and aggravating for them. But it's not as though their experience is completely alien to our own. Uh, so definitely, you know, uh, uh, we should think of them uh, as fully human. We should value them. We should connect with them because there are so many uh, assets that they have if we would just notice those assets. Mm -hmm. And figure out how to how to how to connect beautifully with them, and and there are incredible stories throughout this book uh, about uh, amazing encounters that were surprising to caregivers. But you have to be open to surprises, and not write these people off as quote unquote demented. Yeah, and that unfortunately is our society. I mean, once we reach a certain age in Western society. At first you're old, they start marketing everything to you to kind of remember, you know, there's many different over-the-counter drugs, if you will, right now out there to help you remember who you are. And then younger people discard us. I mean, in other cultures, you know, the older folks are sages and they're the wisdom keepers. In America, we're like, oh, you know, they just all put them out to pasture. But when they put us out to pasture, it seems like they're putting a lot of history out the pasture but yeah. um I, like a, we've been described as a kind of a cult of youth and it's so mm -hmm. true if you go into the african-american community for example uh certainly the uh asian-american community uh there's not such a significant reaction to deeply forgetful people as though they're gone uh, mm -hmm. you know there's much more continuity uh, you know, this is still grandpa, this is still grandma, they're still part of the family, and and honored as such. And so I think, you know, it, it's particularly among the Caucasians, because we have, I think, hypercognitive values, and, uh, and we've put so much emphasis on, on uh, productivity and on linear rationality, we forget about being and, and uh, just uh, slowing down and connecting. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, that age where I'm watching friends and people that I know retire, and I am not of the mindset where you retire and you do nothing. But I know people who've retired from their 
well-paying job that they absolutely love to go to work at, you know, um, 7-Eleven or something, because they have to be busy. They can't just enjoy life and, you know, figure out what it is that they love to do and then live their lives. Yeah. Well, you know, the great, uh, the great spiritual writer Khalil Gibran said that success in life comes when you blur the line between work and play, mm-hmm. when you find your true calling. And, you know, some many people do find their true calling. And so they never really work. They just have fun and they do beautifully. They're never really tired or depleted uh, or burned out. And uh, they're doing what they should be doing. I believe everybody has a calling and a, and a, and and. and and our job is to find it and then to use it to help other people. If we'd only do that. So I'd like to get back to um, dignity. Dignity for deeply forgetful people. In your book, you share a story about being near someone, and I can't remember exactly where you were, but it brought it triggered something that happened with me where someone had um, deep, deep forgetfulness and they were being yelled at by yes. their caregiver. And I was in Safeway supermarket four miles over and I heard this guy just yell at this woman. So me being nosy, I went and I took a peek and the poor lady, she must have been about 90. She, I mean, she's shaking so much she could barely stand. And the male caregiver over her was pointing his finger at her and just screaming. And of course, you know, I injected myself and um, at least got him to stop screaming. But why? Why do these people do this? You know, uh, they need coaching. Um, I Yeah, there is that story in, 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 in the book, uh, in the parking lot in front of the Joseph M. Foley Elder Healthcare Center. Mm-hmm. where a guy in the driver's seat was just screaming bloody murder at this very wonderful uh, uh, wife of his who was deeply forgetful and was heading into the clinic. Uh, and uh, she just couldn't remember how to open the door. And so instead of simply helping her with that, he had grown impatient and judgmental and completely unforgiving and unloving, and he was just letting her have it. So yeah, I walked over there, and and I I intruded, and and he he calmed down, and I I tried to help him calm down with the right tone of voice, and then I I took her in with him there, and tried to be a bit of a role model. But you know, people aren't prepared for this. They don't have any training. They don't have any background in really how to interact or communicate with deeply forgetful people. Part of the book is just on how to communicate. You never ask them an open-ended question. What would you like for breakfast? Because they're immediately on the defensive. Yeah. They they have have to no rem- like you were saying earlier, they have to, re- you know, they have to f- dig up these words. What you, you use language to cue them. So would mm-hmm. you like an omelet or would you like post toasties? Then you'll get mm-hmm. a response. You don't ask, mm-hmm. how are your kids? You say, how's Zach? And how's Jill? And then you'll get sometimes incredibly enthusiastic responses, more of an emotional sort, but they'll remember, they'll know what you're talking about. You can't, you don't use language to put them on the defensive. Mm-hmm. It's about making life as easy as possible. So what role does the brain play within all of this? And where do our memories actually live? Well, that's a great question, Monique. I'm so glad you asked. I want to thank you for that. So this book is unique because there is a seventh chapter and it is entitled, Is Grandma Still There? Question mark. And, you know, um, every grandchild I've ever met has asked me that question over the last 30 years from coast to coast in mm-hmm. many different parts of the world. And I always say, well, of course, she's still there. We have no business being so arrogant as to say, okay, she's gone. She's a husk. She's dead. Uh, Forget about it. No. And in fact, um, if we use so many wonderful methods effectively, personalized music, art, art, Uh, There's an Alzheimer's choir in New York called the Unforgettables, and 
people mm. who haven't communicated much for months and months and months, suddenly if they're singing a song with their caregiver, they, the two of them light up together and believe it or not, they can communicate a bit afterwards. And so there's a stimulation. We can connect with these people and we should never write them off. And some of them, in fact, have a lot to teach us about kindness and about um, a, a, you know, a life which is more uh, connected and not just rushing from point A to point B. So I, I always say, and, and, and I, I define hope in the book as being open to surprises, you know, mm. because you just never know on any given day. 90% of caregivers say that they've been absolutely surprised by these moments of lucidity. And we just published a big paper in the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences on paradoxical lucidity, on, on the extent to which people out of the blue will sort of come into themselves and be coherent for a while. It will fade. It will uh -huh. fade. But the caregivers uh -huh. are inspired because they realize, you know what? We're not just caring for an empty flask, but we're actually ca caring for grandma or grandpa. And you ask, what is memory? Well, that I don't think that memory is understood well neuroscientifically. It's really not. Uh, but deeper autobiographical memory, the narrative of our lives, it's, it, I don't think it's, it's necessarily even within the brain. It's just a mystery. And, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it, it, I mean, sometimes I, I use the analogy. Uh, I have a computer on my desk here, a, lap, uh, a, a desktop, and it holds a certain amount of memory. But actually, most of the memory is in the cloud, you know. Mm -hmm. And the Buddhists and the Hindus say that there is something called the Akashic memory, that somehow who we are is caught up uh, beyond ourselves in a kind of universal mind. We can't say that's not true. Maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, we can definitely take a look at that and, and make up our minds, but it's just... I, <laughs> I don't know, this this condition so frustrates me because, um, number one, it seems to run in families. Um, and is that valid or no? Well, I'm just going based on families yes. I've been around. Yeah, yeah. so, um, but I want us to be very precise about, about the running in families thing. Mm -hmm. um, if you happen to have a first degree relative who's diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. um, and that means either a mother or a father or a sibling. You have a little higher probability instead of say 14% probability of um, being diagnosed by the time you're age 80, you may have an 18 or 20% probability, but it's not very hereditary. There's no um, major genetic factor. I mean, for a very few people, maybe two or 3% who have early onset Alzheimer's, which begins when people get into their thirties and is a very quick uh, uh, course of action. Uh, I mean, they'll be dead within four or five years typically, and they have a lot of behavioral challenges, but those families, they know what they have. You can actually get a genetic test for the presenilin one or the presenilin two gene. But for 98% of these cases, you know, people get a little squirrely around age 60 or 70 or 80, and, and it's not uh, uh, terribly familial. Mm, okay. Um, why is it in America we make caregivers spend, I don't know, their lives almost in poverty. We don't pay them well. Um, if it's a live-in situation, generally they're not treated very well all the time um, in the uh, care person's home. Why is it that we not only dis, uh, get rid of, disassociate with the Alzheimer's person or the deeply forgetful person, but also the person taking care of them, especially if it's not a family member? Oh, it's, it's horrendous just to see the wonderful nursing aides in assisted living centers and nursing homes or who are working in homes, how much they do for people, how kind they often are, and how, how little they get paid. I mean, it's strictly minimum wage stuff. And 
you know, that's a real comment about American culture. I think we, in general, um, we take these individuals who are helping the most needy among us and, and who really, in fact, represent ultimate reality because we are vulnerable, we are frail, and we are dependent on one another. We may kid ourselves and say, hey, you know, I'm just totally independent. I'm going to be independent forever. And uh, um, and I'm not frail. I'm going to keep going for another 20 years. But the bottom line is human nature, uh, we're dependent when we come into this world. When we fall ill, we're dependent. Uh, when we uh, have dementia, if we have it in old age, we're, we're, we're very much um, a culture that denies dependence and vulnerability. And if we had a really just society, we would do much more. We wouldn't allow people, you know, even family members, uh, spouses in particular, to spend down into po poverty. They have to spend down so they don't have more than $15,000 to their name. That is ridiculous. Up in Canada, and I've been all through Canada, every province in Canada has a good Samaritan program. And they mm -hmm. pay assisted living, they pay for nursing homes, they pay for hospice. So you're not you're not put in this situation where you have nothing left. It's mm. Yeah, it is. I uh, recently had a client who um, had to put her husband, I think he's 88, um, into a facility because she couldn't handle him anymore at home because he was a runner. And when she checked into it, she says, you know, Monique, we were fortunate enough to have a home and a beach home and, you know, have a nice life for ourselves. However, to get adequate care for my husband, I had to sell the beach house because we had too much money in the bank. So she sells the beach house, she puts them in this facility, and she is not at all satisfied with the level of care that he receives. Even in a facility, they seem not to give that loving, that caring that you're talking about. Yeah. So I always, I, I agree with your, with your client, by the way, there comes a time when you may not be able to manage a person who's mm -hmm. deeply forgetful because they can have, it varies a lot, but they can have uh, behavioral issues. Um, they can just be uh, very hard to, to, to manage physically. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and so if, if a caregiver feels that they've reached a point of exhaustion, uh, they've lived as, as many 36-hour days as they possibly can, they should not hesitate to rely on professional help. And that means um, assisted living in a nursing home. Now, a lot of times, the sort of tender, loving, personal side of care is not as obvious in those environments. And so I suggest that caregivers visit. You know, my grandmother died of what was probably Alzheimer's, although at that time they didn't even use the word. It was just senile dementia. And uh -huh. I would visit, you know, a couple times a week and do assisted oral feeding, um, you know, just tell her a few stories. It's nice if you can sing with somebody because that actually can bring them out of their silence. If you sing a song that they identify with from early on in their life, they'll sometimes chime in. And in fact, 70% mm -hmm. of them will. So you, you, and they'll even get somatic and rhythmic. So, so there are things to do. And, you know, you, you, just because they've been relocated into a facility doesn't mean that you're abandoning them. It just means that you're getting some help and you can still be there, stop by on the way to work or on the way home from work three or four times a week, if you want, still be there. Yeah, why not? You know, it's important um, to uh, the family, and it's also important to the person receiving the care. Now, in your book, you talk about a subject that um, it, it's wonderful and frightening at the same time, and that's preempted assisted suicide. Um, there are certain states in the United States where that can happen, certain states where it cannot. So talk to us about that, and if the person has... Um, forgetfulness how do they know they want to commit suicide i mean they might yeah. think monday yes and tuesday no so listen monique this morning <laughs> i got an email from an old friend in cleveland mm -hmm. it says dear stephen this notice to let you know that my sister i'll delete the name 
mm-hmm. will end her life on Wednesday the 17th. That's just two days from now. Wow. She and some of her family are there now, completing the final details under Swiss law. She went to Switzerland. There's a place called. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am devastated. All good things to you. Say a prayer, please. And, you know, um, I do talk about assisted suicide, preemptive assisted suicide, a whole chapter in the book, because there's no way we can deny that. I, I talk about a guy in San Francisco. You're out in the, on the San Francisco area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This guy was a street clown, okay? And uh, he, 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 for years and years, performed his tricks on the steps of the public library and all of that. And he was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's and he began to decline. And he had not much money. He had no family members. So there was no one who could really look over his, his, his journey as he became uh, uh, incapacitated and protect him from dying with a tube in you know, every orifice, natural and unnatural, which he certainly did not want. Mm-hmm. So, so he took his money and he bought a plane ticket. And he, he went to Switzerland to Dignitas and was never heard of again. And I, I talk about that in the book. I actually wrote some articles in medical journals about it. And I said, you know, judge not lest you be judged. I don't support this stuff. I'm, I'm much, much more into providing supportive and loving, caring environments and for uh-huh. us to learn how to connect with these individuals. But if someone is, well, they're calling them now live alones. I don't like that language, but if they have no family, and they just don't know where they might end up, and they don't want to go through this experience, I'm not, um, I'm not going to be the person to judge them. So that's mm-hmm. basically where I leave it. I don't endorse this. But in, when I, in my Cleveland days, honestly speaking, I spent 20 years at Case Medical School. There were four or five families that I encountered. And, um, these were you know, pretty significantly thoughtful people uh they did not want to go through this decline so they had some secanol from their physician and Uh they asked me just in a pastoral way to sort of be there if they had to say a beach house along lake erie Um, Uh and i did that a number of times i didn't support it i didn't help them but they wanted me to say a prayer with them they wanted me to just be there so the you know the fireplace might be lit and they'd be Uh there adult kids and their spouse and maybe a few friends no grandchildren no kids at all because that's a very bad legacy to leave for that for the young since uh-huh. you know it, it's complicating for their own uh futures but i i um i witnessed that and you know bach is playing and 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 the fire is burning and everybody's saying goodbye and hugging and and then in comes that to milkshake with the secan all in it and, and mm-hmm. nobody swallows that down. And then in, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour, they're asleep. And it's not a horrendous, hopeless thing. I don't get, mm-hmm. I don't endorse, I'm not, a, I'm not a proponent of this. And I have to be careful not to make that clear for everybody, but but I'm 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 willing, if, if this is what someone really insists on doing, uh, like that email I read you a little earlier, mm-hmm. Uh, I am not going to uh, to judge them now. Unfortunately, you could say I think in the U.S. we have, you know, we have assisted suicide laws in in uh, nine states, mm-hmm. um, but they're you basically they're all the same. So, Monique, you've got to be diagnosed by two physicians separately as being within say six to well, six to 12 months of dying. And uh-huh. you have to be capable of pushing the button yourself uh, uh-huh. or whatever it might be. So you, 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 it's, a, it's an assisted suicide. It's not euthanasia. I mean, you have to do the final act. And so that's why um, these people are still lucid of mind. They have pancreatic cancer. People with, with the ALS in Oregon, uh-huh. uh, uh, go this route because they're still competent and uh you know they can they can turn off that breathing machine and they can call it quits <clears throat> um but with alzheimer's or something along those lines you know many many years before you're actually you know within six months of dying 
Mm-hmm. You lost your capacity to do anything. And so yeah. you're cut out of that. And I just don't know if that's right. You know, in uh, Canada now, in Quebec, Americans are going to Quebec to have this opportunity. They're going to the Netherlands. They're going to to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I mean, it's amazing where you have to go to get what you feel is right for you um, medicinally in this country. But I want to talk about Alzheimer's and prevention. Earlier, you mentioned that at age of 30, early onset uh, Alzheimer's can set in. Can it be prevented, period? Can it be a mind over matter type thing? You know, that's tough. The youngest person I've ever known with a clear diagnosis of Alzheimer's was 25 years of age. Wow. That's <clears> awful <throat> young. Very young. So, so you know, again, 98%. Uh, basically, the, the way it breaks down is about, you know, about 2% of people by age 70 have probable Alzheimer's, and that doubles every five years. And so when you get up into the 80s, you're talking about 14, 15, 16%. Uh, people used to think, well, okay, you get over that hump of 85 and you're home free. Not true. They now have studies of women, for example, in their late 90s, and 60% of them have probable Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't um, get simpler as you age. But can you prevent it? Well, for the normal old age onset stuff, yes, because you've got plenty of time. Okay, diet makes a difference. I mean, Uh for example, there's pretty good studies out of Colombia. The Mediterranean diet seems pretty good. That means basically uh, vegetables growing above the earth, not, you know, potatoes and roots and things. Uh Um, So, you know, lettuce, uh, um, you know, typical uh, uh, berries, strawberries, blackberries, blueberries. Um, You can, um, you can have, Fish, fish are good. Um, uh, you know, you 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 want a basic. You know, uh, uh, cheeses are actually okay. So the Mediterranean diet um, seems to be slightly preventive. Again, it's not a miracle worker, but also mm-hmm. exercise is important because a lot of what we call Alzheimer's is not just Alzheimer's. So, quick definition: dementia can be caused by more than 200 different diseases. 100 years ago, the major cause of dementia was neurosyphilis. They didn't have antibiotics. Mm. And people weren't living as old as they are now. So Mm -hmm. they got syphilis and it went to their brains. Now we don't have neurosyphilis around, but Mm -hmm. people are living to be a lot older. And age itself is the major predictor of Alzheimer's. But, you know, many things. I mean, people can have chronic traumatic encephalitis, concussions can cause Uh dementia. Parkinson's is typically associated with dementia. There are so many conditions, diseases that cause dementia. So dementia is a set of symptoms and and it's not not caused by any single disease, but by many different diseases. Alzheimer's probably causes about 50% of dementia in the US today. But it's very much mixed up with other things like like small stroke events in the white matter of the brain. These are called vascular dementias. Uh So if you if you um, if you eat carefully, if you get some exercise, uh, it's been said that just, uh, you know, walking at a regular pace, a half an hour a, a day can can be preventive. And I think that's true. I think some of those studies are compelling. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, you know, use your mind. I mean, you 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 don't want to just be passive. Um, have a purpose. There's a study out of Rush Presbyterian Hospital in Chicago that's been duplicated twice now. Older adults who have a strong sense of purpose. Think about this, Monique. Mm-hmm. Strong sense of purpose have one third less memory loss in old mm. age. So if you have purpose, a noble purpose in life, you know, you will, you will be doing things, your memory will be not entirely, but will be more spared than it will be otherwise. And so a purpose in life can matter. Also, 
positive emotions. There's a, you know, 20 years ago, I was actually at a conference out in Berkeley, again, not too far from you. And um, that was the first time, these were leading neurologists from all over the U.S., Uh the first time that they acknowledged publicly that probably stress, protracted stress, is a cause of Alzheimer's because one of the things that Alzheimer's does is it shrinks a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which lays down memories. And Uh so if you've got those stress hormones there, not only do they clog up your arteries uh, with fatty acids and slow wound healing over a long period of time, but they also hurt your brain. So, So there's a great organization on Alzheimer's prevention that I was speaking with not re- not long ago, and they think that meditation and mindfulness are important. So whatever you can do spiritually uh, and socially uh, to to uh, to alleviate uh, stress and anxiety, that can uh-huh. all be very helpful. And also, nature isn't a bad thing because, like, when you go to a meditation place, you'll typically hear chimes and the winds and so forth. So, you know, cherish nature. Uh-huh. And find inner peace. Okay. Now, say a person, you know, has um, someone in their home who has come down with um, the energy of being deeply forgetful and they can't care for them anymore. They just can't because of, you know, living daily lives. How can one truly assess a place for their loved one to be? You know, I mean, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, you go in and you smell the facility. If it doesn't smell like pee, it should be okay, because that means they're taking care of everybody. That's BS. And I mean, bullshit on that one, not belief system. So, so, So how can we truly assess a place that is supposed to take care of those with memory issues? Hey, listen, you got it right. BS. There's a lot of false advertising out there. Mm hmm. You know, every every nursing home that wants to make a buck is going to put out a sign that says we have a special care unit for people with Alzheimer's disease. Uh-huh. I would say uh, be skeptical. Uh, you want to you want to really go into that facility. Uh, you want to insist on making observations in their special care unit because at some point, what happens is you know. In a, in a nursing home, you know, a lot of people are kind of mixed together, but then they'll take the people who are more and more deeply forgetful and kind of separate them out. This has been mm-hmm. going on for about 25 years. Um, and, and so in a particular, in any particular unit, you might have 20 to 25 people who are very deeply forgetful. You want to go in there. You want to spend time. I have a story in the book about Joe Foley, a neurologist friend of mine. We went to a nursing home in Chardon, Ohio, called Heather Hill. Mm -hmm. And um, I went into the special care unit, which was a good one. Um, And uh, Joe and I read the biographical sketches on the wall of this fellow's room. You always want to look for that. Do they have a bio sketch so that Mm -hmm. you can connect caregivers with who this person was and is and their narrative? And so we read this and this fellow had, he had a couple of sons and he'd been in business. So we went out into the, into the main room and uh, I asked the nurse uh, to show us uh, Jim. And she took me over to Jim and I took him by the arm and we sat down at a table and um, I asked him, Jim, how are your sons? Because we read on the bio sketch that he had two sons. Uh-huh. He actually got very anxious. And I realized right then and there, I hadn't spoken correctly. So then I said, hey, how's Luke and how's Zach? And he got very radiant, and very energetic. Uh-huh. And he had a white, a white branch that he it was just a foot long or so. And he, he was painted white and he put it in my hands and he smiled. And if a smile was electric, the place would have caught on fire. And he said, God, And I asked the nurse, what's going on with Jim? Turns out he grew up, he loved his father a lot. And like a lot of these people who are deeply forgetful, you know, the moment we're living in is kind of full of chaos. They can't interpret Mm -hmm. it very well. The buzzing, the beeping throws them off. Mm -hmm. So they'll go back in time 
to when and how they experienced tender, loving care. He loved his father a lot. And his father gave him a chore in the mornings, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. So he oh. didn't have much linear rationality. He couldn't, he couldn't proceed from point A to point C. But boy, he, he had symbolic rationality. He knew that mm -hmm. somehow who he was, his story was wrapped up with that white twig. And then there was a beat up rag doll on the floor. And, you know, it looked like it had been made 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, a puppet doll that a you know little girl would have on her hand and he, he he actually walked over to that doll and he picked it up and then he slowly ambulated over to a woman in a chair in the corner who was crying and he put it on her lap and she stopped crying and i asked mm -hmm. the nurse and yeah that was her doll so he still had a lot of emotional intelligence going on mm -hmm. he, was maybe more sensitive than a lot of us are on a day-to-day -day basis he wasn't running from point a to point b in a frenzy like we all have to do to make ends meet he was in the moment and he was sensitive and caring and it was a beautiful thing so i so i say i think i could i, I felt i could learn something from jim i did learn mm -hmm. something from jim he was resilient and he still had love in his heart yeah, and that's it. Con unconditional love, the love in the heart. Um, as I shared with you before the um, show began, my mom, actually it's my stepmom, um, passed away of Alzheimer's. And, you know, um, we had a placer, which like hurt everybody in the family, but it just couldn't be done in the home. And when it was time for her to make her transition, um, it seemed as if the nursing staff including hospice, really didn't give a F. Right. And I'm I'm talking about not caring. It's beyond not caring. So no. talk to us about, you know, when that final time comes for someone yeah. struggling with this and it's time to make the choices of hospice or whatever you're going to make, especially if you're not doing the um, assisted suicide. What can we do? How can we look out for the loved one? Well, you know, most older adults have extracted a promise from their family don't put me in a nursing mm -hmm. home yeah. <laughs> right. yes and that was the promise i was living up to but i, I got you i got you. oh yeah the first right there you know and and nursing home i mean it's a it's a terrible terrible name for any uh uh institution mm -hmm. because it basically means they took the hospital model and moved it into some cinder block facility and put beds in it for people to lie down and die. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, so assisted living, I mean, there are whole new uh, movements in the design of assisted living programs, and they're really quite um, quite impressive in their own right. And they they'll typically even have uh, uh, activities where older adults uh, can, for example, you know. Uh, set set up baskets for a local charity and, and find meaning in, in their lives so it, you know they'll 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 have uh, uh um uh, uh ipods with um music uh to stimulate memory they'll they'll do a lot of things and and uh, you know you gotta let people live their lives to the fullest so that they can um flourish to whatever degree they're able to but yeah, I mean, I mean, so you have to be very careful and and you're going to have some caregivers who are wonderful. I mean, some of the greatest people I've ever known in my life are caregivers working underpaid in these kinds of settings. Um, but like everybody in healthcare, you know, they get they get burned out um, and um, they need help. They need to be supported. Um, mm -hmm. they, 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 you know, I, I, they, they really need uh, themselves to get time away to be treated uh, as human beings with needs, unless they're going to just sort of get depressed and 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 they so so you you know they they need our support, and that's part of the problem with our system. We don't have enough individuals, and the ones we have, we sometimes just work them into the ground, and they still especially with inflation, you know, they can't make ends meet. So mm -hmm. this is a real problem. Um, and I don't have an easy answer, but I just spend a lot of time 
with caregivers. I mean, I got to tell you that there's a story in there about Joe Foley and me. Um, mm. Joe, Joe was the only neurologist who was both the president of the American Neurological Society and the American uh, Academy for Neuroscience. And we spent about 20 years together uh, in Cleveland. And we went to Mount Vernon, Ohio, where they had a geriatric psychiatric hospital. And uh -huh. one wing of it was people with Down syndrome who would hit like, you know, 45 and 50 years of age. And typically they have signs of dementia. So they're losing capacities uh -huh. and um, they can be challenging. So right there in the middle of Ohio, of all places, this is in San Francisco, you know, there was a community of Hindus. They were from India and they, uh -huh. they uh, and these, and, and Joe and I just stood in this unit and we looked at the love and care that they poured out on these individuals. They never became impatient. They were able mm -hmm. to soothe them. It was a beautiful thing to behold. So Joe and I took a couple of them out to a pizza restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, I, I was going to tell a joke about pizza, but it's too cheesy. No, I want, sorry. About that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we took him out to a, <laughs> <laughs> we took him out to a pizza restaurant in Gambier, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and we asked him, so why 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 are you so caring? I mean, you seem like un unlimited in your love. And of course, by the way, for love to be love, it has to be unlimited. Mm -hmm. And um, um and they said to us, Namaste, which is the Hindu greeting. And it means I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine, divine in me. And so, mm -hmm. so what they what they were saying was, look, these folks may be, they may be deeply forgetful, but they're still as valuable as anyone else. And they have within them this point of light, this divinity. They're still part of and connected with this universal mind. And if you notice carefully, if you give them an opportunity, sometimes they'll express it completely out of the blue and you'll feel very happy to be caring for them. Yeah. Wow, what a great story. Um, it's really important, I feel, that if you are the caregiver and you've had too much, you've had enough um, to have systems in place beforehand, like most people can contact their local Alzheimer's Association and uh, sign up for respite care or any, you know, other um, services that they may offer. I know that here in my city in Fremont, we have the uh, Senior Citizens Commission, which I'm chair of, oh. and we give out all kinds of information for not only just for Alzheimer's, but anything across the board for a senior from getting a new job to, you know, to figuring out how to travel the world, whatever it is. And these services are available, but we have to do some research mm -hmm. and ask, not just go to the doctor and the doctor says A, B, or C. You got to make up your own mind. Um, wow, uh, Stephen, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. What pearl of wisdom would you like to leave with our audience regarding uh, deeply forgetful people? Well, I would just warn everybody against stereotypes and humiliation and de-dignification. You know, uh, I got a letter up here over my desk and he endorsed the book from his holiness, the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'd gone, this was in uh, December of 2015. I'd gone over to India to the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies to do a program on consciousness and, and, and deeply forgetful people. And there were, you know, a couple of hundred leading neurologists and philosophers from India there. And there were some Americans there and I said, you know, don't ever judge somebody because they forget your name. Don't ever judge somebody because they don't have that sort of linear rationality that allows you to carry out your plans from point A to point B. What's mm -hmm. important is their consciousness, their symbolic rationality. They still, if, you, if, if they have that right symbol in their hands, like Jim did in the nursing home, they still know that that's wrapped up with who they are. So it's, mm -hmm. the, it's, the, it's the rationality of who you are, not of what you do that really matters. And his, so His Holiness the Dalai Lama hangs around uh, Bangalore and, uh, 
he actually came into the back of that room uh, and uh, and he said you know what really matters is not you know is not linear rationality all the western philosophers say if you can't be a uh, an agent, an active agent in life, you don't really count so much. He said, what really matters is consciousness. So mm -hmm. these people can still appreciate the smell of an apple pie, even if it's, you know, look, I, 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 go, I actually go to McDonald's occasionally just to smell the apple pie because it reminds me of my grandmother's kitchen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> no, but I get it. Yeah, no, yeah. I get it. But, but you know, that, so that, that ability to to connect with smells, with music, with the colors of autumn leaves, with the sound of the waves breaking on the ocean. I mean, that's all there. And so mm -hmm. it's the consciousness is there. And, and he said, there's no reason to think that somebody who is more deeply forgetful than others is of any less value than anybody else. Anybody else. else. Yep. And that's the point of the book, Dignity, Hold in grace. That simply means for me, hold them in grace. Hold in grace, deeply forgetful people. Thank you. Appreciate it greatly. Appreciate your time. The audience, I think that I I know, I don't think I appreciate your time. And I okay. honor you for being with us. Go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy too. Um, I want everybody to remember that the most important choice that you can make is what you choose to make important. Consider making the masterful choice of providing dignity for deeply forgetful people. Upon the blessings, light and love to all. Agape.